In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to, who all, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he comes after me before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here. Thanks for being here on the Lord's Day to praise Jesus Christ together. Welcome back to the Gospel of John, week two of we're not sure how many. Last week I gave an introduction to the whole of the Gospel and it I mentioned that in the most basic terms, the Gospel is, has four parts to it. The first part, which is our text for this morning, is the introduction. The second part, which is sometimes called the Book of Signs, is a longer section on Jesus' teaching and ministry and that's the rest of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 12. The third part is a longer section then on the last few days of Jesus' life, sometimes called the Book of Glory, and that's chapters 13 through 20. And then chapter 21 is the fourth part. It's a conclusion. This week is a type of introduction to the introduction. So you got an introduction last week. This week you get an introduction to the introduction. My simple but lofty aim. This is a big aim. I'm going to explain more about it as we go on. But my simple but lofty aim is to help you all, all of us, myself included, and in some ways myself is foremost, to appreciate more fully John's central claim. The whole, whole the Gospel of John has one central claim, or one central aim at least, and that is that Jesus is the Christ. I want to help you all appreciate that more, myself as well, in order that you, we, would more fully live in light of that glorious, eternal, guiding, and life-giving reality that Jesus is the Christ. To do so, this sermon has four parts. So the introduction gave you four parts of the gospel. This introduction to the introduction has four parts as well. First, I'm going to present a number, quite a few. Uh, uh, passages from the Old Testament that promise the coming of the Christ. Second, I'm going to reiterate and revisit John's claim that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of them, every one of them. 
Third, I want to help you to see how John's introduction, that is our, our passage for this morning, relates to all of that. What do the first 18 verses have to do with the Christ promises of the Old Testament and John's central theme of his gospel? And then finally, and most briefly, I want to give you a few glimpses as to how the Christ promises of the Old Testament and John's introduction relates to the rest of the gospel so that we can move through it well in the coming weeks and months. So let's pray. Above all, that God would show us increasingly this morning the glory of Jesus, who is the Christ, and through that transform every fiber of our being. Let's pray. God, I suppose, as I just said, my my aim is simple. I, I pray that we would better appreciate this morning the nature of the Christ that was promised for centuries and generations in order that we would better appreciate the fact that Jesus is the Christ, in order that we would better appreciate the fact that that has implications for every minute of every day, for every corner of the universe, for every trial and struggle and joy and victory and defeat. God, I know that there are people in this room right now carrying heavy burdens, sickness or finances or some difficulty. This this is the news. Above all, above all other news, this is the news we need to hear. That insofar as this is true, and it is, insofar as John is right that Jesus is the Christ, and he is, insofar as our hope is in that, it is sufficient good news for this life and the next, for now and forever. And so however familiar we may be concerning the Old Testament claims of who the Christ would be or what the Christ would be like and what the Christ would accomplish, no matter how many times we've heard Jesus Christ or sung about it or gone through a Sunday school class on it, we would have a fresh sense of awe and wonder this morning. And all that in order that we could glorify you with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our soul and all of our strength. That we would live in light of the light as lights to the whole world more because of this this word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So by some accounts, there are nearly 600, 600 Old Testament references to the Christ. As I mentioned in the introduction, the first part of this survey is a, the first part of the sermon is a survey of a number of them. The passages I'm about to share with you, I didn't count it up. Kids, maybe you can count them up for me and let me know how many this is. But the passages I'm about to share with you offer a number of descriptions of the Christ that God promised to send. Some will be familiar, especially if you've ever been around church at Christmas time, or you got a Christmas card from someone who is a Christian, you, some of these are going to be familiar, but I purposefully chose others as well that also promise the coming of the Christ and describe certain aspects of the Christ that are less familiar to us. And I did that in order to give you a fuller sense of the scope of what the Bible says. My aim is not to do a deep dive into any of them, 
but to help you appreciate the vast array of the Christ-promising passages in the Old Testament. Again, I'm going to say this several times this morning, my hope is that you would be amazed, freshly amazed, newly amazed, that whatever level of amazement you've ever experienced at the Christness of Jesus would increase this morning as you consider the glory of the promised Christ. I have a sense of what it's going to take for that to happen, though. My sense is that doing so, for you personally, for us collectively, to grow in our understanding and appreciation and awe and wonder at these promises of the Christ, I think something's going to happen, is that you're going to have to imagine right now, and some of you won't have to think too hard about this, but you have to imagine yourself in a truly tough spot. Maybe it's a sickness that you have or a loved one, and and you just you can't think of any way to overcome it. You've you've exhausted your options. The the sickness remains. There doesn't seem to be anything you can do. And then somebody makes you a promise that there is a doctor who's coming, and then names their qualifications. Every patient they've ever treated has gotten well, and and where they used to struggle to walk, they can all jump seven feet in the air now. And and where they used to be burdened and shackled with pain, they. They dance regularly with joy, and this doctor studied at all the right institutions, and you have to imagine being promised that in your time of trial, or maybe you're in deep financial trouble, and and someone who has resources beyond what you can imagine is coming and promises relief and promises to show you how not to get into this problem, or perhaps it's a broken relationship, and There's a promise of someone who's coming who can help you fix it, not only take away the pain or the brokenness, but heal it and fill it with fulfillment. You have to imagine that kind of longing, and I'll tell you more why that's so appropriate to think that way in the next section. But but listen listen carefully to these passages about the promised Christ. Because whatever physical sickness you might have, or relational struggle, or financial difficulty you may endure, or whatever other form your trial may take, you have a deeper trial, a deeper struggle, a deeper need. We all do. In light of that, listen listen to the promises of the Christ. Listen to the promises that of rescue and victory. If you have ears to hear, this is awesome. Just think about that. Just think, if if you were promised these things, how awesome would that be? You have ask yourself, do I dare believe this? Because this means everything. This is my whole life, if this is true. Oh, if only that were true. May, may he come quickly. I made a choice. One more thing before I get to the actual text. I made a choice this week. I, I had a scope that, that I thought was manageable to cover in the sermon, uh, and I... Within the you know forty minutes, and and I realized quickly that to do what I think needs to happen here, I used way more of it in this first part, uh, and so the rest is shortened. But I think it's right. It's a lot of verses, kids. It's it's a lot of verses. But listen, listen carefully, and imagine, imagine this person coming. Very first one comes almost immediately after the fall. The Christ, as you'll see, is promise of help and healing and redemption and salvation. And almost immediately after the fall, immediately after that need came into the earth, came into mankind, we read, 
God's promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's a simple promise that the Christ would be a descendant of Eve and would one day defeat the power of the devil that had just won a tragic battle. Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Dare to believe this grace. The Christ would come from the line of Judah and will rule forever. Numbers 24, 17 to 19, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. The Christ would come and conquer all of his enemies, enemies of life and light, enemies of life and light. Dare to believe that, Grace. Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking. From among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. The Christ would speak on God's behalf with even more truth and authority than Moses. Job 33, 23, if there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become flesh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I have sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Christ would be a messenger, a mediator, a ransom, a merciful redeemer, and a restorer of righteousness. 1 Samuel 2.10, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The Christ would be anointed and strengthened by God for his eternal kingly rule. 2 Samuel 7.12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. King David is speaking of. And I will establish his kingdom, a descendant. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The Christ, the eternal king, would come not only from the tribe of Judah, but more specifically from the line of David. Psalm 2, 7 and 9, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The Christ would be, the be, would be begotten of God, and God would bring everything in subjection under him. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen: For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. 
I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The Christ would be pierced and mocked, but not ultimately broken. Psalm 16.10, You will not abandon my soul to shale or let your Holy One see corruption. That Christ would go to death on behalf of his people, but he would not remain there. Isaiah 7.14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The Christ would be born of a virgin. Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. One is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth, we'll hear this in John, is from old, from ancient days. The Christ would be an ancient ruler coming from the city of Bethlehem. Malachi 3, 1 and 2. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. We know from this that God would send a messenger to prepare the way of the Christ, and the Christ would come with fire. Isaiah 43, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Again, the Christ would be announced by one set apart by God for that purpose. Malachi 4, 5 and 6, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, all these are in John. We'll see these. But he will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Dare, dare to believe this. Would you believe that this is the promised Christ? He would be announced by one set apart by God. The prophet Elijah would come and bring about a revival of repentance to prepare the way for the Christ. Zechariah 9, 9. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteousness, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. You won't need the battle bow anymore. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The Christ would be the king of the whole earth and would bring righteousness, salvation, and peace. A humble and mounted on a donkey. Zechariah twelve ten. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look upon me, On him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The Christ would suffer and die in order to bring the mercy and grace of God. And most familiar and comprehensive of all, Isaiah 53, lastly, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he was he, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before his shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and while a rich man in his death, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniqui- he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the Christ that God promised to send. There is much more that could be said about every one of these verses and the many other Christ-promising passages of the Old Testament But I invite you to truly imagine, to truly hope in these promises that God would send, and as we'll see, has sent this Christ, that he would bring to a lost and lonely and desperate people this Christ. Imagine how wonderful these words must have sounded to all who would dare to believe them. They are but a brief sampling in order to help you more fully appreciate the second part of this sermon and the central claim that John makes. And that's this. Once again, the overall purpose of John's gospel is to show that Jesus is the Christ promised in every one of those passages. Grace, the only response to that is to stand in amazement at these promises of the Christ and then stand in greater awe and wonder that all of them are speaking of Jesus. In chapter 20, John tells us this directly. Now, now Jesus did many other signs. It's chapter 20 is at the, almost the very end of the gospel. And so the whole gospel is filled with signs and wonders that Jesus performed. And John says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It really is hard. I've taken two weeks already, and John took the entire gospel to put into words how significant of a claim this is. To even begin to grasp it, as I mentioned earlier, we have to try to put ourselves in the place of Abraham's children. To, to know what it must feel like to be healed from cancer, you have to put yourself in the position of one who suffered through it, through the 
the terrible news that you have it and the way that the treatments wreak havoc on your body and to watch them having walked through that probably lost their hair and felt weaker than they ever have and lost weight and at times lost hope. But to begin to grasp what a claim this is, we need to put ourselves in the place of Abraham's children. We have to remember God's promise of being with them as their God. I will be with you in fellowship with you as your God. I will be your God and you will be my people. We have to remember God's promise to make them into a great nation and to provide for them an abundant land. And within that, we need to try to recall their centuries-long history of a roller coaster of high highs and low lows. We have to remember that the main covenantal promises of God, countless offspring, fertile land, came first to Abraham. And with that, to an Abraham who was old and whose wife was getting older and older and older without a child. We have to remember the miraculous conception that God eventually gave to this barren woman when she was 90. We have to remember the fledgling, wandering family through Abraham's son Isaac and grandson Jacob. We have to remember the betrayal, imprisonment, and eventual rise to the power in Egypt of Jacob's son Joseph. We have to remember the slow but steady increase in number of offspring to the point that they made the world's greatest power, Egypt, nervous, resulting in a centuries-long enslavement. We have to remember the covenant-defining spectacular rescue, Exodus, at the hand of God. We have to remember the giving of the law and the giving of the promises, the giving of the sacrificial system and the giving of the feasts. We have to remember the taking of the promised land, almost. We have to remember the prophets and the judges and the kings who sometimes faithfully and oftentimes tragically led the descendants of Abraham, the children of God. We have to remember the pinnacle of Israel and King David and the building of the temple under his son Solomon. We have to remember the sin-wrought divided kingdom under Solomon's sons and the gradual and devastating decline of the nation to the point where God was silent. For 400 years. We need to remember Abraham's children's spectacular oscillations, swinging back and forth between acknowledgement and rejection of God, between obedience and disobedience, between faithfulness and faithlessness, between desperation, having been given over to the hands of their enemies for their sin and ecstasy from God rescuing them miraculously time after time after time, between God's blessing on them and his curse for their disobedience, between their prideful, ridiculous confidence in themselves or in a stick that they carved or in an idol that they cast, and the realization conquered usually of their need for God's help. And within all of that, we need to remember that God promised one to send one who would fully and finally deliver them from all of their enemies and all of their trials and most significantly grace from themselves, from their own sin and idolatry and pride and wickedness and rebellion, from the wages of their sin. If you eat of this, you will surely die. This was the very thing God's people had longed for. So there was no bigger claim that someone could make about a man than what John made of Jesus, that he was this man. He was this Christ. 
and to make sure that everyone who read his gospel knew how radical of a claim he wrote. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. If I do a good job of preaching through John's gospel, you're going to hear me mention this over and over and over because they shape and flavor all of John's gospel, but even more importantly, because they ought to shape and flavor every aspect of our lives. Those of us who claim to believe in the name of Jesus and have life in that name. As we work through John, we'll see that even though Abraham's children had a spectacularly high understanding of who the Christ would be and what he would accomplish, and that even though they were right to long for his coming and deliverance and reign, their view fell short in its truthfulness and even its intensity. They got a lot right, but they missed some big things. And their longing was intense, but it wasn't intense enough. They missed the true nature of the Christ and how truly awesome he would be. And so it was for all of those reasons that John began his gospel by making claims about Jesus that tapped into all of these promises, as amazing as they were, and even expanded on them beyond what anything Israel was expecting. That's where we turn now. At the end of his gospel, chapter 20, as I just read, John told us why he had written all that he had written to prove that Jesus was the Christ. Well, at the very beginning, the first 18 verses, John wrote them to describe the Christ he wanted his readers to believe in in terms that are even more staggering than the verses that I've already read to you. John's John's point, John's aim here was to put in the first 18 verses all that he would demonstrate in his recollection of Jesus' teaching and life in the next 20 chapters. He certainly claimed some of the Old Testament passages we just read, but went even further than all of them, and in some ways than all of them combined. With that, let's look again at our text that Stephen read just a little bit ago and the unfathomable claims it makes of Jesus of Nazareth. It is these claims that the rest of the gospel demonstrates and defends. With all the weight of centuries of waiting and expecting and longing for the Christ. And incidentally, Christ is the Greek translation, the New Testament translation of the Old Testament word, Hebrew word for Messiah. With all of the weight of centuries, the the weight, the heaviness of centuries of waiting and expecting and longing for the Christ, John's gospel begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were made through him, and without him not anything was not any anything made that was made. Much that John would claim about Jesus as the Christ would fit neatly in the passages that we just read from the Old Testament. Indeed, the idea of the Christ being with God in a certain sense wouldn't have been surprising. Likewise, the idea of the Christ being linked with the wisdom or knowledge of God would not have been hard to fathom. It's Deuteronomy 18, we read that earlier. However, linking the Christ with the Genesis 1 creation account, along with the idea of Christ eternally being with God as God, was something different altogether. This is hinted at in the Genesis 3 passage that we had read earlier, but no one would have been prepared for what John wrote here. 
Similarly, the idea of the Christ being the wisdom or knowledge of God incarnate with flesh on in human form was not something Abraham's children would have expected. To understand this even in a childlike way, kids, you probably get this better than some of us adults do. We've heard this too many times. We're, we're without the Spirit's help, numb to this. Kids, you get this. These are not small claims. These are not claims that you just sort of casually take in. Oh, yeah, that, yeah it's, he's, he's wisdom in the flesh. He's, he's been with God eternally because he is God eternally. To understand these things in an even childlike way is to be absolutely awed. It is grace. You think you need something for help in your trials, and you might. But this is what you need more than any of that. It is to find help. To get this, even like a child, is to find help for every trial and hope for every struggle. Jesus the Christ, John wrote, was eternally God, eternally with God. Indeed, he is God. He is wisdom embodied, and he participated fully in the creation of all that has been made. In him was life. Verse 4, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's a little bit more familiar territory for the Jews to hear, for Abraham's children. We saw in a number of passages earlier that the Christ would bring life, victory over enemies, rescue, and the way of salvation and redemption. We saw earlier that the Christ would be a guide or a light to the people of God. The Old Testament talked about that. We saw earlier that the Christ would be righteous. He would die for the transgressions of the wicked, even though he had no unrighteousness in himself. And we saw earlier that the Christ would be entirely victorious. Jesus was all of this, according to John. Jesus is life. He is light. He is truth. He is the way. He is victorious. He is the Christ. Amen. There's a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, John, but he came to bear witness about the light. Before the Christ would come, John wrote, echoing three of the Old Testament passages, Malachi 3, Isaiah 40, Malachi 4. God would send a messenger to announce the presence of the Christ. John the Baptist was that messenger, and Jesus was that Christ. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, to the children of Abraham, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who would, physical offspring of Abraham or not, to all who would receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To be born not of the blood, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Again, while God would send many people, God had sent many people to reflect His light. Hear, hear this, Grace. God had sent many people prior to the Christ to reflect the light of God to the world. And while the enemy, the devil, would send many counterfeit lights, fake lights, things claiming people claiming to be a light that weren't. Jesus, the Christ, John claimed, was not a mere reflection, a a mere mirror, 
He certainly was not counterfeit. He was the one true light of God. And yet as a number of Old Testament Christ passages promised, John promised as well, Isaiah 53, the light of Jesus would be rejected even among his own people because they loved the darkness. To those who would receive him, however, in faith, to those who would believe upon his name, John taught here that they would be born again of the Spirit as God's children. This is what the Christ would do. This this is who the Christ is for, all who would receive him. Jesus is this Christ. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus, the Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. That Christ would be born as a man, the Christ would be born as a man and live as a man, but would have a glory, a glory of grace and truth that was from God because he was God. And the Christ alone, being from the Father alone, has seen God and came to make him known, John said, this is Jesus Christ Church. He is the Christ that God promised to send. He became flesh and dwelt in divine glory among us. He is the only Son of God. He, Jesus, is full of grace and truth. He has seen God because he is God. The simple point, once again, is that in this introduction, John's introduction, and we're going to look at more closely in the coming weeks, John was making spectacular claims about Jesus, that he was the fulfillment of every Old Testament Christ promise and more still. He was and is still the hope of the nations and the hope of you and me. And so in conclusion, the last, the last point is I've tried to make clear in the first 18 verses of his gospel, John wanted to put all of his cards on the table. In this introduction, John wanted his readers to know right from the beginning, here are my claims. He claimed all of the Old Testament promises for Jesus and expanded on them. But Grace, it's one thing to make claims like that. You can make that claim about anybody. It's one thing to make claims like that. It's another thing entirely to back them up, to prove them, to show them to be true. I I could claim these things about any one of you, but on what grounds might you believe me? The rest of John's gospel, again, was meant to back them up. The stories about and the teachings of Jesus that John recounts in his gospel are all meant to demonstrate and defend the spectacular claims he makes right here of Jesus as the Christ. The main takeaway for all of us is to recognize afresh with the Spirit's help. The Spirit is not pleased to do this work among us. This is some interesting stuff. I never knew that passage was talking about the Christ and never quite thought of Jesus as the fulfillment of that. That's interesting. At best, that's what you'll have. That's what I'll have. But the main takeaway for all of us is to recognize afresh that more than anything else, we need Jesus. We need Jesus 
Jesus is the Christ, the one that God promised to send. He is what we need. Deeper than every pro- every problem and any problem you might face on earth is the problem of your sin and rebellion against God. More than anything else, Jesus is our help and our hope and our healing. More than anything else, anyone else has or will, will or could offer you, Jesus is truth and life. More than anything else, Jesus is our guide and our way. And all of this comes to us to receive the Christ and all of the blessings that he promises and won for us on the cross that John will tell us about. Not through our own good works. We receive this not through our own good works or our own righteousness, but through God's mercy and grace to all who will believe on his name. And so as John invited us all to earlier in the, in the exhortation, would you do that today? If your hope is already in him, would you call freshly upon him as we work through this gospel of glory? That you would have a fresh and increased, ever-burning sense of what it means that Jesus is the Christ that God promised to send and all that that means for you. Would you pray that the Spirit would be pleased to drive that into every fiber of your being, that every breath you take and word you speak and step you take and thought you think and thing you do or don't do would all flow out of the staggering reality that Jesus is the Christ. This will come to you not through your own works, not through your own righteousness, but through God's mercy and grace. Would you do that today? Would you receive Jesus as the Christ? Would you call upon his name that all of the promised blessings of the Christ would be yours forever, ultimately? fellowship with God.